Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast, recording from the Cleveland Public Library. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Andrew Tobias. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And thanks for tuning in. Ohio is an important state. It's important geographically, economically, and socially. Most prominently, it's important politically. This podcast will dive into some of that importance, talking with political figures from the state about their history and the significance Ohio plays in the political realm. We'll bring you weekly in-depth chats with guests from all walks of political life. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast service. Special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for helping us make this podcast possible. This week, 538 senior politics reporter Claire Malone joined us via Skype. She's a former Shaker Heights, or still a Shaker Heights native, I guess, rather, and, uh, you know, has been covering politics up close for the past year. You know, what did you guys kind of make of the talk with her? She used a turn of phrase in her uh, talk with us that really intrigued me. It was, uh, the idea was that she feels that the suburban voter has been radicalized, and that's kind of who Donald Trump represents. Uh, It's kind of like the ethos that he projects. And it, it's sort of, uh, I like the contradiction in that because you think of, I think like McMansions shopping at big box stores or whatever, you know, daycare, soccer and all that stuff. So I, I thought it was really evocative. And I think it actually, I'd never really thought about it before, but I think that is like a really astute observation about how the electorate's feeling and, and what Donald Trump tapped into. I really enjoyed listening to Claire talk about her evolution as a reporter, how she got into journalism. And I think her brand of journalism is really interesting and really unique and sort of the direction that more and more journalists should be or will be moving towards in the future, which is combining data with storytelling and putting faces to numbers, as well as, you know, when she talked about, you know, the unique challenge to being a national reporter, it means that you fly to places and you don't know anything and you have to really be honest with people and and make sure that they understand that really you're just trying to get the lowdown and you're not trying to be mocking or you know anything like that but but really honestly asking people real questions and 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 really having a sense of curiosity rather than just trying to go to the next story, go to the next state, um, really trying to understand people's unique problems in different areas. And I think that's interesting because it, it's not something that I encounter as a, a state politics reporter. Like I, I live in Ohio. Um, I experience you know the same sort of reality that plenty of Ohioans do. But when you have to fly into an area and sort of you know, hit the ground running and and start to try to understand what people are going through and what their problems are. Um, I think she really hit it on the nose about the tone and um, the the authenticity. Um, I think she's a real authenticity to her. What about you, Seth? You know, I took it to heart when she talked about data journalism and how maybe we shouldn't call it data journalism. Maybe it should be called empirical journalism because all it all she's trying to do with her work is instead of using just a narrative or instead of using just numbers is kind of meld the two and put some oomph behind what she's trying to say. Uh, that really stuck with me. And I, I think her takes on what she sees in 2018 and um, how she's able to sort of look at all the avenues and see what's going on and what she thinks is going to happen. I, I think it's going to be great for people to hear that, especially as we enter into the uh, election months coming up. And without further ado, let's listen to the interview that we did with 538 senior politics reporter Claire Malone. All right. Joining us live via Skype is 538 senior politics reporter Claire Malone. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. It's great to be here. All right. So, Claire, what we we want to do is the point of this podcast is to illustrate just how wide-ranging Ohio's influence actually spreads. Uh, You're a figure with some significant national prominence as a senior writer for 538, but you hail from right here in Shaker Heights. So we were wondering if you could come on and just kind of tell us about your background here in Shaker Heights in Ohio. Yeah, so my my parents are from uh, east side of Cleveland. And um, I went to public schools the whole way through, um, Shaker Heights Public Schools, which are pretty good. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny. I've, I guess, I, you know, be covering Ohio through a national website, like whenever I read about Ohio, I get really excited to do it because it's, it's obviously, you know, kind of, kind of home field advantage, home field pride to a certain extent. Um, but I wouldn't say I came from a particularly, you know, politicsy sort of household. Um, I mean, my parents are smart, thoughtful people and, um, all of my siblings are, you know, good arguers. (laughs) I come from from, from sort of a big family and, you know, sort of never lacked for conversation. But um, I'm not quite sure why I got 
interested in politics. I, I ended up, um, you know, I left, I left Cleveland to go to school on the East Coast for college and, and went to school in D.C., which probably had some sort of influence on it. But I was an English major. Um, I did, you know, I did sort of politics was always kind of in the air, but maybe somewhere in the background um, in Ohio, you're always you always know you're an important state. And so um, you would you would kind of cover or be aware of, um, you know, in school or, or what whatever it was the big, the big deal that Ohio was in presidential elections and things like that. Um, and I was always sort of, um, you know, game to argue really into writing. And, and I think politics has really just been a vehicle to, to write about really interesting characters. Um, and, um, I, I, I think coming from the Midwest, you know, people always talk about Midwestern nice and polite, you know, people kind of group like Iowa and Ohio and any, any state in the middle as, as like, uh, oh, that's where the sort of, you know, like the goobers are from. But I think it makes, I think it gives people sort of a, it gives you more of a, um, a curiosity. Like I actually feel very grateful to have grown up in Cleveland because there are so many great, so many great cultural institutions. And, um, you know, even though the city, particularly when I was growing up was, you know, on hard times, I, I still felt like there were, there are always things to seek out, but you didn't sort of have like a chip on your shoulder the way a New York kid might have, you know, I've seen it all, I've done it all. So I do think that there's often a curiosity that's born out of, um, coming from a great place like Cleveland that's sort of rated as an underdog, but, um, you, you, you spark a lot of curiosity growing up here. And I think, I think that's probably something I, I took into, into adult life writing and eventually coming politics. So uh, after the election last year, and maybe a little bit before too, I think there's like this intense anthropological interest in the Ohio Trump voter and, you know, what are we thinking yeah. and that kind of thing. So did you feel yeah. like that's me? Like, I'll step up to this job. I can tell you exactly what it is. Or did, did you ever have, find yourself having to kind of play like, you know, Ohio translator for, uh, you know, uh, from a national level? No, I mean, I think I'll, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself like a savant at all. You know, I think everyone if we're all being honest about the way the election was covered, everyone was sort of fumbling around, but I will say, so I, I wrote this, I wrote this big piece, I guess it published in March or April of last year, but it was, it was called why Trump. And this was before, you know, fake news and all that stuff. And, and I had been on this traveling swing where I had been in Nevada and then Oklahoma. Um, and I was really confused about why, why sort of establishment Republicans were voting for Trump. And I, I, sp I went to one of the Trump rallies in, I'm blanking on where it was, but it was in an airplane hangar. Um, and it was somewhere in the Northeast Ohio area. And there was something about coming back to Ohio. So I, I went to Ohio and Michigan on that trip. And there was something about being back in the Midwest and talking to Midwesterners where I did feel like I, like my priors were grounded. I was like, okay, these are like Midwestern people who I kind of are more familiar to me than say Nevadans or Oklahomans who maybe you know, I think we all, we all kind of parlay maybe regional stereotypes onto people. But when you're talking to, you know, the types of people that you grew up knowing or talking to, um, for some reason it sort of grounded my understanding of the Trump phenomena a little bit. And I kind of started to think about it as the radicalization of suburbanites, right. For, for, for lack of a better term, like that's how Trump ended up winning the primary is he got sort of those mainstream Republican voters to, to vote for him. And, you know, tr going to Trump rallies, like it was a, it was a, it was a moving experience, right. You could understand why people liked going to it. You know, they play the national anthem. There's this very solemn thing. There's this huge American flag. People did feel like they were sort of in this community. Um, so I will say that I, I do kind of chalk up my like Trump clicking for me moment was on, the, on this trip where I went back to the Midwest. And that might just be partially of like, all right, I'm on I'm on home turf and I I have I'm able to like see this through people that maybe I feel more <laughs> innate kinship with. But but I don't, I don't know how much I'm now I played Trump explainer to people. You know, I've, I've been on the East Coast long enough that I'm not going to I'm not going to pretend like, you know, I have all the answers and I'm you know, in Northeast Ohio or Youngstown or Canton or whatever, talking to people every day about this stuff, um, which is sort of the nice thing about being um, a local or regional reporter at this time. 
You know, I know that you mentioned growing up uh, in Ohio, you had a sense of uh, that Ohio played an important role uh, in national politics. And one yeah. of the questions that we're asking ourselves now, um, is Ohio still a swing state? Is Ohio still a state to win? Is it still a toss up? Mm-hmm. I'm curious for your thoughts on where do you think Ohio's place is in the national debate today? Yeah, I think, well, I think, you know, Ohio probably still is a swing state to a certain extent. I mean, um, you know, at, at least on the, on the presidential level, um, you know, it went, it went, it voted, it voted for the guy that won this year. Right. And, and has for the last couple of cycles. I think, um, I still think it's an interesting state with something like, you know, you guys know this all too well, but the governor's race and the Senate race, you know, you see, you see a Republican, um, you see sort of, sort of a hotly interested contested race on the, on the gubernatorial side among Republicans. And, um, then Sherrod Brown, at least in our sort of rankings or ratings is seen as, um, a little bit of a favorite. So you can still see the kind of, um, the splits that go in, go on in Ohio, just through those two elections, I think. Um, and I, I, I still think it's a, it's a place where that was emblematic from my point of view of, of these, you know, we call them Obama Trump voters, right? The people who voted for president Obama, sometimes both times and then flipped for Trump. Those are definitely people that exist in, you know, not just Ohio, but Michigan and Wisconsin states that, you know, if you're a Democrat and you're saying, I want to flip the house or I want a chance at the Senate, or I want to play at 2020, those are all places with not the same kind of voters, because obviously there are differences between Wisconsinites and Michiganders and Ohioans, but they all share similar, similar histories, similar backgrounds, you know, similar sometimes immigration patterns. And those things, you know, those things matter and unfurl, you know, in history and political leanings of the people who vote. So I still see Ohio as a really interesting emblematic state. And I don't just think it's my home team bias. You know, we talked a little bit about how the national media kind of covers Ohio. And uh, one thing we've seen since the election is sort of the parachuting in of, uh, you know, media organizations coming in, doing stories about the heartland. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to me, I I look at it and it almost seems... um, uh, you know, sometimes like they're gawking, they're, they're, they're looking yeah. in, you know, that kind of thing. Um, do you see any value in, in doing those sort of stories in Ohio or, um, do people in those States even really care about those stories? Yeah. The parachute story is it. Yeah. It's, it's hard because I think, um, you know, I'll say like, I definitely go to States that I'm not from and I do, you know, I don't do TV journalism. I do what is probably, it's probably my closest analog, even though I write for a digital website is like magazine journalism, if I'm doing longer stories. And I think that if you write, if you spend some time in a place and make an effort to talk to people on a lot of different levels or sides of an issue, you can write a really good, interesting story and not be from a state. I do think that there is a little bit of like, I hate to say it, but you know, lazy reporting, that comes from, as I said, you know, earlier in this, in this talk, like, you know, grouping people from Iowa and Ohio together as like, you know, like the simple folk from the middle of the country who, you know, uh, and, and, you know, that the headline of the story will be, they voted for Trump because of economic, economic anxiety, or they voted for Trump because of racial animus. In reality, you know, uh, you know, it's hard to write a headline. (laughs) So that's a little bit of a simplistic example, but in reality, Midwesterners, Ohioans are complicated people, like all people, and motivated by um, complicated dynamics. So was there racial animus in Trump voters? Probably. Was there also economic anxiety? Definitely. And it's really hard to tell those stories in one story. It's why local news outlets are important, because people in Ohio shouldn't just be reading, you know, the parachuted in TV piece that's like four minutes long. They should be seeing their storylines reflected on the nightly news every night or, you know, online in a paper. And, and I think that becomes harder and harder because, as we all know, journalism models are really hard to sustain, not just, I mean, definitely on the national level, but regional TV and newspapers are um, hit really hard in, in, in a changing digital economy for, for news consumption. So it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Like I'd rather see 
a good reporter pay attention to Ohio than ignore it to just do like a like a phoner story from a DC or New York office. But it certainly has its downsides. And that's one of the things about reporting is like we don't have to pass a bar exam or take a medical boards, you know, to certify that we're good at our job or, you know, we are going to do a worthy job. It's just reliant on, you know, your reputation and how much effort you put into telling a good story. So I do think that like national political reporters have an extra onus on them when they go out and cover stories on the campaign trail to say, am I talking to everyone as I parachute in? And and I, I think you should probably ask the question, you know, like, fill me in on what I don't know. I'm obviously from out of state. Bumbity bumbity bum. I need to know the scene. But, um, you know, I think it's just a reality that these stories are just going to keep happening. And I think it is, it does fall to national reporters to be aware, um, as much as possible that they're, that they need to get the fuller story as much as possible. Are they doing that effectively though? I mean, you know, I, I think back to the New York times piece about the neo-Nazi from, downstate Ohio. And that's, you know, that's generally not reflective of the entire state as, you know, as far as my experience goes. So, I mean, is, is it useful to do things like that? Or, uh, you know, I I guess another question would be, what do reporters get wrong about the state when they sort of parachute in to come take a look at it? Well, I mean, you know, the, the tropes of Ohio parachuting in journalism, you know, 10 years ago, it was, it was like Rust Belt porn, ruined porn, right? So there's that category then there's the category of hipsters are populating this broken down section of, um, of fill in the blank city, you know, um, or, you know, here's the desolate suburban Nazi. Um, so there's certainly like, like holes that, that edit, like assigning editors want to be, want to fill in. Do those realities exist in Ohio? Sure. Um, but there are also lots of other textures. So it's, it's actually kind of a, a hard, question to answer because I mean, ideally we don't really, you know, what's, what's the perfect story to tell about Ohio? I would say, you know, maybe it's a good way to tell it is to find, you know, a movement or a person to profile that isn't just, you know, uh, the extremes, but trying to find a way to make, I guess the median interesting. And that's like, that's a really hard thing to make people click on. Um, so, but I do think that, I do think that Ohio and I'd say, parts of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Indiana, somewhere like Gary, Indiana, right? We've had the same stories written about these places over and over and over. And I think that that gets frustrating for for people because, you know, when I went to college, people, I found myself defending Cleveland so much, you know, people would would make fun of it, you know, like the river that burns, a lot of things that, you know, you could you could look at something like all right the river burned but now we've got this environmental festival yeah, and were your Let's... friends like Claire I'm so sorry that your mom and dad lost their factory jobs that's horrible <laughs> right things like that I mean there is like you know yeah Cleveland isn't New York but there are lots of I think there are lots of interesting things that are happening in the Great Lakes region you could write about you could write a future looking story about what are, what about the Great Lakes as a resource and the environmentalism of that region like there are lots of um, lots of things right that you could tell a story about but the the peril right now of being in national media or local media is that everything it seems like everything every editor wants to have a trump hook to the story and i often find that that narrows what you're talking about although i do think that you know as the midterm elections come and and um there'll be there'll be more coverage of the state races probably of political movements maybe on the left a bit more so Perhaps you'll be seeing more texture to the coverage of the state, I would hope, and, and, you know, and other states in the area, because I do think the upper Midwest was a really interesting story in the 2016 election. And I do think it deserves um, its, its due coverage. So um, hopefully we'll get better at it <laughs> in the next couple of years. Um, Claire, uh, something I didn't know about you until I did some research for this podcast was that, and I'm going to like butcher how you pronounce this name because I remembered when they're talking about the World Cup, uh, Qatar, yeah. Qatar. Yeah, Qatar. You can say it either way, Qatar or Qatar or Qatar, as the British people say it. Yeah. So I, I, it's just I thought it was interesting that you uh, that you worked overseas for a couple of years after graduating. Um, did you find that kind of living in a different culture helped? Uh, did it shape your kind of perspective as a national political reporter, you know, in the U.S. where you are traveling to different parts of the state that are really different? Or um, it, is there any way that your experience doing that has informed kind of you as you've grown as a journalist? 
Yeah. I mean, I think the baseline thing it taught me as a reporter, and I wasn't out there doing reporting. I was working for, for a university, but it was, um, I think living in a place like that one it's, you know, I'm a white woman. It was really interesting to be a minority in a country, um, which just wasn't something that had happened that I'd experienced before. But two, I think as far as reporting skills happen, Qatar's an interesting place because it's got lots of ex- expats, lots of um, people from Arab countries, but lots of people from Southeast Asia. Um, and it just makes you learn how to talk to anyone, which I actually think is a very useful skill as a reporter um, because, um, I don't know, people just like to talk, right? You know, as long as you, as long as you sort of present yourself and is relatively open and honest about your story motivations. And, you know, people generally want their opinions to be heard. And I will say that living in Qatar, um, you just heard all kinds of interesting stories and perspectives. And there were a lot of different, like extreme political views of either side, you know, Um, the big divisive issue was the state of Israel, you know, so there were, so politics, you know, politics was its own particular dividing line out there. But Um, yeah, I think it definitely just made me really hone, kind of hone my people skills. Um, I'm not saying I I wasn't, I wasn't good at talking to people before them, but it really does. Um, it sort of makes you, um, hold back and listen a bit because often you have, you know, I thought, you know, I have the most boring story here. I want to hear this person talk about, you know, their, how they just like, you know, dug for oil out in the desert and they spent the last six weeks in some strange place in Indonesia, you know? So, um, that's what I would say about that experience is that it just made me more curious and interested in people's, the, the array of people's stories. At Capital Letter, it's the must-have daily read for State House happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit Cleveland.com slash Capital Letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. I thought it was interesting when Claire started talking about working as an English major, um, which I deeply identify with because I am one, in a sort of mass-centric environment and finding stories within data. You know, I think that some reporters are super, super interested and fluent in data and can understand the numbers and how to flip the numbers and and make those stories really pop. And I feel like other reporters, um, such as myself, are more attuned to sort of human story. And so I thought it was so interesting when she was saying she was sitting in these like staff meetings talking to, you know, statisticians or, you know, numbers guys who can find these patterns and these trends and having to look at those numbers and think think about the people behind those numbers and thinking about ways to try to tell those stories. And I think that's like a really like interesting way to go about traditional journalism. And I feel like she had a point in the fact that more and more in the sort of like alternative facts universe, the more numbers that you can peg your story to and humanize that story is so important. I do, I do find it interesting that, you know, people tend to think of English majors and think of prose and, um, you know, foo-foo writing and whatnot, but she has found a way to kind of wed the two uh, using data and using, you know, um, very good verbiage, just good storytelling in general. And I think she touched on kind of the marriage between the two there. And she described the work that 538 is, there's this kind of like a tendency, I think, in our industry to peg it as data journalism, which I guess like if we're all doing our jobs right, there is data in everything that we do and that, but in rigor and that kind of thing. But she called it like empirical journalism. Um, and uh, so I don't know if that's something that like is of 
uh, import to like the broader listenership or whatever, but just within the stuff that we do, that's the kind of conversations that we have. And that's the kind of thing that I do think about um, when I write the stories that I do wanting to make sure that just there's a, there's a basis because none of us want to just be like spouting off, you know, as fascinating as spouting off is, you know, you do want to have just kind of a basis for the things that you're saying. And now back to more with uh, Claire Ballone of 538. I'm thinking back to the route that you took here. Given the route that you did take here, um, it, it seems like it's been kind of a winding road going from, you know, Cleveland to D.C. to Cutter to New York, you know, with stops in between along the way. I mean, how did you transition from working in a place like Cutter to being a writer covering politics in America? Yeah. Um, well, I feel like a lot of journalists have... Uh, winding career paths, and I was certainly—I'm certainly not not different in that respect. I did—I did college journalism when I was at school, but I didn't. I covered like like I was a sports editor. I did the opinion page and like a features editor, and I did end up editing the paper. And so that was certainly um, a lot of time <laughs> in college, and it was just fun. To, it was a—it was fun. I like writing. I liked being around people. I—I I found the people in the newspaper fun, and so I did this. Um, couple of years, the first two years after college, I lived in Qatar and worked for an American university. And as it was kind of time for me to come back to the U.S., I was thinking about what I wanted to do. And um, I did, mostly I was like, I either want to be in journalism or I want to do something politics adjacent. And so I just started applying for jobs, you know, um, speech writing jobs and journalism jobs because I I wanted a job. I wanted to not live in my parents' house when I got home. Um, And I did end up having sort of a little bit of a I lived at home for maybe five months after I, five months in Cleveland after I got home from from Cutter and you know worked worked at a business actually, um, but I decided to just kind of up and move to DC. I took a temp job. I, um, I I slept on a friend's couch for a little bit while I was applying in jobs for DC because I decided you know if you wanna <laughs> if you wanna work in a city you'd better be there and, and meet people. Um, so sort of luckily I. I got a job at a, a small politics magazine. It was like, I think the first job offer I'd gotten in, in five months. Um, and I said, yes, I'll be your, I was the executive assistant. Um, so I was the editor in chief's secretary basically. Um, and he was a really great guy who gave me lots of opportunities to write, to sit in on meetings. And it just kind of went from there where, you know, once you're in a small place, especially and someone gives you an opportunity, you're just, you know, I was mostly just like, I want to write, I'll write about whatever, whatever you need. Um, and you just sort of get better at, at sort of trying to find the opportunities, but, um, definitely, you know, moving to DC and, and sort of taking that, that thing was that, that, that small risk, um, relatively was, was kind of what set me down the path of, of doing political journalism. And after that, it's sort of been, I hate to say this, but like, you know, fate, right. From, from job to job, you'll say, this seems like a good place to work right now. And I ended up working at 538 a little bit through happenstance where I'd been a fact checker at a magazine and I was freelancing on, you know, on my off hours and, and did want a full-time writing job. And I had a friend who said, listen, there's this job at 538. Um, the job description says you should have covered a national you know, a national campaign before, but I bet you could still, you know, get an interview. And, you know, we interviewed and I, I kind of clicked with, with the people. And I think I offered a different perspective, uh, you know, more sort of straight old school sort of journalism reporting style that I think they hoped would complement. And I hope has complemented 538's really great analytical, um, and statistical strengths. And, that's kind of where I am. I mean, I in no way <laughs> thought when I graduated from college that I would be working at this website because um, I was frankly pretty bad at math. <laughs> but uh, it's been nice. It's been this English major is is very happy to have landed where she did. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. Do you, do you ever step back? Uh, I do this frequently. You know, I'm uh, not to give too much about my background or anything, but I'm from a small town and I could have never seen myself reporting on politics in Ohio and Cleveland. And yeah. every once in a while, I take a step back and I think about how kind of weird my job is. You know, people listen to what I'm telling them about what's going mm-hmm. on. Do you ever take a step back and sort of think about that, you know, about yourself, uh, given you're on a very large stage? Yeah, it's funny. I don't, I mean, I don't ever think about, I guess I do know that I, that it's, you know, I'm working for a national website. 
you know, we, I don't, I don't think about it that much. I think, um, I often just try to, I often think, you know, I've got friends who are, you know, smarter than I am, but you know, they have, they have another job and they read the news and, and my, my job is to literally just be an informed citizen in some ways, right? That's what the fourth estate is, is I'm kind of, ideally journalists are supposed to be the proxy for the citizenry. So we're the ones who are reading everything and asking the politicians questions as I like to think as a proxy for, you know, my mom and dad or, uh, you know, whoever it is in upstate New York or wherever you're covering, you're acting as a proxy for the citizenry. And I think that's the most helpful thing. Like whenever you're feeling kind of in awe of power, it's you're sort of saying, well, this is um, this is my job. I'm supposed to be, you know, writing and helping to inform people and actually covering um, covering the primaries was a really good reminder of that. Like when you go to Iowa and New Hampshire, these sort of early states, and everyone's sort of, everyone's sort of, there's always the piece that's written that says, well, why do Iowa and New Hampshire, two white rural states that aren't very representative of the 21st century United States, why do they get to be first? And that's a whole different conversation. But those voters are so, they have a sense of entitlement in a good way when they ask candidates questions. I mean, they grill people in town halls um, and just no holds barred. And I really like to think of those entitled Iowa and New Hampshire voters when, when, when I'm reporting or thinking about things, because it's, it really is, that's what you should be doing. This is a democracy. We're supposed to be holding these politicians to account, you know, um, and these high profile jobs require more accountability, more scrutiny, not less. Um, so that's kind of how I, how I think about it, but you're right. It is weird to step back and think, it's weird that so many people, it's weird that I have these Twitter followers um, because, you, you know, but, but when you think about it, when you do step back from your stepping back, you'll say, well, I spend all day reading the news and I've talked to these people. And so not smarter than they are, but it's just that I've, <laughs> I've devoted all these hours of my day and, uh, and hopefully it's, it's helpful for people to understand the world a little bit better because I'm often confused about, you know, things until I talk to someone or read more about them. And I think that that's, that's natural. And, and the, you know, hopefully some of it helps feed people's curiosity or understanding a bit more. You know, obviously 538 is heavily steeped in data. And you've described yourself as a, quote, story girl at a data guy website, which I thought was a really <laughs> interesting way to put it because, number one, it's gendered, Right. And number two, mm -hmm. you're talking about the difference between sort of narrative, traditional journalism versus this uh, very data-centric type journalism. And, you know, as a fellow English major um, who is also pretty bad at math, um, I'm curious, you know, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you find the narrative within the numbers? I, I just, it's funny, I never, I didn't realize I said that. Um, but it's, you know, when I first came, um, I think one of my one of the stories that I sort of pitched myself on to 538 was a story about um, that I'd written about migrant women in Qatar. And the story was kind of filled with certain statistics, like these are the number of migrant laborers living in this country. It's hugely populated by people who have no citizenry. Um, okay, how many of those people are women? And you kind of broke down um, the number, the, the sort of these these crazy numbers of migrant workers and the crazy number of women who were being, frankly, sexually abused in this country. Um, and I found women who were living these numbers and wrote a story about them that I thought was pretty good. And I sort of said to 538, this is something I could do with, you know, politics numbers. Because, you know, some of, some of the stuff that we do with data, when I look at the charts on a lot of our stories, I know a lot of people love them and find them really accessible. I don't, you know, I, you know, I'll, I'll read the charts. I'll, you know, I'll pay attention to them, but they're not the first thing I gravitate towards. Um, but I don't think that means that people like me should, who are maybe more story focused, more character driven. I don't think that makes us dumber. I think it just means that we need to tell the story in a little bit of a different way. So one of the, one of my favorite things to do here as far as story idea generation has been, sitting down with some of my colleagues who have gotten a really interesting data set and saying, this is really cool. Let's go to such and such County, which has, you know, uh, you know, let's, it's either like flipped from Obama to Trump in this really interesting way, or, 
you know, it's whatever it might be. It, it might have a high rates of, you know, people on our, our site have done stories about addiction and about, you know, water quality in certain places. But there's always, you know, in, in 2018, there's always going to be numbers attached to important stories. We're becoming more um, digitized by the second. But numbers and polls in particular are sort of the moving reflection of the culture. And I find that really interesting. Um, so sometimes, a lot of times it just happens to be, you need to put a person who has familiarity with a data set, um, or an interesting census page, you know, there are really cool census migration pages that you can look at. Um, and you, and you put it together with the person who has more of a narrative background who says, okay, where do we go? Who's the character? How do I find that character? What experts do I call? You just have so much more of a strength and, and I find it really fun and, and sort of educational uh, to think of story ideas here. And um, in, in some ways, it's I think it's going to it's a skill that I think a lot of journalists will are, are learning to, to do more, to incorporate more data. And I think it's something that people will need to do more, especially in the, uh, you know, fake news era of things. You can never be armed with too many facts, even if some people won't listen to them. Um, it helps to be able to, to state your case soundly. So um, that's sort of how I, I think about it here. Um, I've, I've kind of noticed, uh, especially kind of during the presidential election last year, that I guess there's like a tension between the data journalism, like what sort of 538 typifies, and then like quote unquote traditional journalists who are like out wearing out their shoes and like, I don't know if they're still chain smoking or whatever, but like... Um, you don't chain smoke? Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> but but so, but so uh, I, I still like, um, you know, your boss uh, will sometimes on Twitter criticize other media outlets and then the reporters will kind of get back. And so it is kind of like this inter-industry sniping that's not necessarily interesting to a, to a broader audience. But I think it does mm-hmm. kind of speak to like there is a tension between the, the approaches uh, that each kind of like discipline represents. Do, do you think that that tension is overstated? Um, do, you, do you think? I do. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, um, Nate himself might not be a shoe leather reporter, but um, he supports, you know, he has writers in his his site who are. Um, he he runs an entity that is actually fundamentally, I would, I would, I think it's close to analog, uh, is a magazine. It's a smart magazine. It's not, it's not newspaper writing because it has more analysis and numbers, frankly, than um, in, on, on balance than, than say, um, like a 700 word quick profile of so-and-so. Um, but it is, it is journalism. It is rigorous. It is analytical. Um, and there are, there are a number of us who come from traditional news outlets. Now, when Nate started, it was obviously started as a blog and it moved to the times and stayed pretty sort of in Nate's wheelhouse of, of polling, but you know we have a number of reporters who are now being supported by the site who do traditional journalism. And frankly, I think we um, have added an element of you know attaching numbers and charts, which I, which I don't think is a bad thing. Sometimes Nate says, I think sometimes you know Nate has said, I don't like the term data journalism because it's been so skewed by this yeah kind of petty fight. We like to think of it as empirical journalism, right? Like we are <laughs> we are stating the facts and sort of trying to prove them, or at least trying to give you as much evidence as we can muster for, um, for what's going on in an issue. So I do, but I do understand that, that when, you know, this sort of stuff was first bursting onto the theme, the scene, people thought, well, wait a second, you can't just write about polls only, right? Like, don't we need to know about people? Absolutely. But I think if you're writing about, you know, we were talking about parachuting in stories in Ohio earlier, well, you can't just go around and count the yard signs and say, this is how like North Olmstead is going to vote because that's just, let's talk about what's the educational level of North Olmstead and how they vote the last election. Like that stuff's more important and indicative than, than counting guard signs, which is obviously oversimplifying the debate. But I, I would argue pretty, pretty robustly that um, we're, we're a news site in, in a journalistic entity in the manner of frankly, many many sites out there whatever it's worth i almost like reflexively rejected anytime somebody mentioned the yard signs to me in 2016 so i don't know if maybe i overcompensated because there were a lot of yard signs and ultimately you know trump did win so who knows what that really means
Well, that leads to another uh, kind of interesting question. So I'm kind of a polling geek, I guess. So uh, I love polling. I love reading it, getting into the nitty gritty. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering what you think sort of the future of polling holds because, you know, everybody sort of criticized the uh, the the way people read polls in 2016. I mean, what's what's kind of the future of it going forward? Is, is it going to remain the same and people are just going to have to alter how they look at the numbers or, uh, you know, what's next, I guess, is the question. Yeah, I mean, I think the the reason why polls, particularly state polls, are off a bit in the last election, and this is where I have to give my my normal disclaimer that actually um, Trump's win was in within the margin of error in national polls. Um, but I think right now it's a you know any pollster would tell you this is a, a really transitional time for polling because. Um, fewer and fewer people pick up the phone for random numbers that are calling them, which means that if you're getting a live interview for a poll, which is the best kind of poll, um, they just have fewer and fewer people to sample. So now pollsters are trying to move to, well, how do we do a really high quality internet poll in places like YouGov and SurveyMonkey, which are two online internet pollsters. Um, they're trying to sort of refine that. But I do think we're in this, this transitional period for the medium, but also at a time when we're paying more and more attention to polls. And so if, you know, if, if the listeners of your podcast are trying to think of a way to make sense of polls, especially in this, in this year of primary polls, I would say that the best way, you know, let's say you're looking at the Ohio Senate race or the Ohio gubernatorial race, I would say, look at the aggregate of the polls. In other words, go to a site like 538 or go to a site like Real Clear Politics look up the race that you're that you're hoping to see and wait until there are a few polls up there and say, okay, what's the average? What's the average of the poll? Because, you know, one poll might have oversampled a certain demographic of person and, you know, whatever. You want to wait for, for a few, a few uh, data points on your plot line. Um, but I just think that, that we're, you know, in addition to polling being in a transitional period, I think we're also going through a period where the American public is just getting used to seeing polls more and more um, in their daily news consumption. And I think people have a learning curve. So we just have to give people time to become smarter readers of the polls. And it's, it's, you know, it's contingent on us to make sure that they, they become smarter readers of the polls, because I do think they're useful in a certain way. You know, we're giving you snapshots of changing human opinion about the culture. And I do think that that's important. Um, but you're right. It is certainly something that I don't think people should be afraid of the polls. but you're, it's, you're, you're fair to be skeptical of the polls, you know, but, but learning how to read them and sort of read them smartly and not just rely on a single poll tweeted out by, say, the president, <laughs> you can't always assume that that is indicative of a trend. It could well be, but it could well not be. What do you make of the broader political trends going into 2018? What are you kind of looking for as a reporter? Well, I think um, a lot of people are talking right now about the Democratic wave. Um, and we will see how much that comes to bear. I think um, certainly we're watching the House of Representatives as a pretty pretty substantial chance that it might flip to Democrats. But I'm also watching Senate races, which aren't it, – this it's, it's not quite so sure that the, this, that the this de Democratic wave will hit the Senate. So I'm watching sort of those electoral um, dynamics going on. I mean, as far as broader themes for this year's election, it's – very well, not this year's, this year's and, and 2020's. Um, I think we're, we are sort of looking at, at issues like immigration and what they represent both from a concrete policy ramifications point of view, but what they also represent culturally about America. Um, you know, the wall, build that wall for some people was, you know, the manifestation of the policy view that they had, but for others, it was, um, a way to, to voice anger about, as I said earlier, either racial animus or anger at, uh, economic prospects. And I think that the country is still feeling very much the ramifications of the, the 2007, 2008 financial crisis. And, um, frankly, I think that was something that was maybe overlooked a little bit on the national level over the past 10 years. Um, and I think that we're seeing people's real skepticism with, um, with the government and uh, large corporations and, you know, <laughs> which might seem ironic given that, that Trump has turned into a relatively 
um, typical re- Republican when it comes to, to policies. Um, but I think those are sort of the, the cultural themes I'm looking at, in addition to just sort of keeping an eye on, on, on Senate races. But because I think that people are still, you know, in some ways, 2016 isn't over at all. You know, you're just going to see it repeated over in 2018 and 2020. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to watch that that sort of ra- almost radicalization movement mature into the next two and four years. Do you see uh, in the couple of the special elections we've had so far, I guess, or three of them, um, so Virginia, uh, Alabama, and Georgia, it's obviously different regions than mm-hmm. Ohio and the Midwest, but do you see anything in the electorate there and the outcomes is possibly, you know, translating to Ohio specifically, or I guess maybe more like broadly in a regional sense? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it is, it is a little hard to tell with those things. I mean, let's, you know, Georgia six, which is, I think the race you're talking about, it was a pretty college educated, excuse me, college educated district that ended up voting for a Republican, but by a smaller margin than it usually does. That's interesting. Uh, Doug Jones, you know, he, obviously one for probably particular reasons in Alabama, but uh, he had a coalition of, of Republicans from suburbs who either stayed home or probably flipped to him. So I think when you're looking at upcoming races, at this point it becomes a little bit trite to say this, but I do think that looking at the way that college-educated people living in typically suburbs of major metropolitan areas who might have voted Republican in years past, are they going to stay Republican? Are they going to flip? Do they like what the president's been doing? I mean, if we're talking about Cleveland stuff, I sort of wonder like, well, how are, how are some of like the exurbs on the East side going to vote? Or like, how are some of the people in Bay village going to vote? You know, like there's, you, you kind of wonder how the Trump Republican party is working for people in those areas. And I think that's that's a that's a question I don't know yet for let's say Ohio elections, but I think will be pertinent, and that and that demographic has been interesting in these races throughout the country. So I think that's one little thing to keep an eye on. I mean, I think in Ohio people will still have their eye on those Obama Trump voters, but um, I'm interested in seeing what people who or the quote unquote you know old school establishment Republicans whether or not they're gonna you know stick with their their party choices in in the coming years, if those party choices become more and more Trumpy. What do you make of Sherrod Brown's chances of retaining his seat? Do you have any thoughts on that as part of that Democratic wave, I guess? I mean, he's already in office, but do you see him yeah. retaining those Trump voters, those Obama Trump voters that we were talking about? I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, right now, I think he's rated as a slight favorite by the Cook Political Report, and I will defer to them on, on that uh, for right now. I do think that you know, if I were Sherrod Brown's camp, I'd certainly be interested in all the the scrambling that's happening after uh, Mandel drop, dropping out. Like, you know, I don't know if he wants to run against J.D. Vance or someone else. You know, it's I think it's it's certainly a time to be to be very uh, interested and perhaps cautious about about your prospects. I'd still say that he um, still rate him as as the slight favorite in that race, though. I mean, but you know, we're January January sixteenth is when we're talking. So who knows what will have changed by the time this airs? But you know, in six months, it's it's just going to be. I think it's going to be a really interesting, a little bit wacky year. If I can make one prediction, it's that you know there are going to be people who might decide to retire. There are some people who are unfortunately ill. There's going to be a lot of um, you know, especially on the Senate side. I think you know. It's an it's a more interesting race because I think the Democrats are are certainly facing uphill battle, but you know on the other hand, the Republicans don't have it locked away just yet. Claire, I remember uh, I uh, last year you wrote a piece and I can't remember exactly what the headline was, but it's something like uh, here's the makeup of the U.S. Senate and here are six unlikely things that have to happen if it were to change. Yeah. And so one of the six things was that you said that um, Alabama would have to become a, you know, that would the Alabama uh, Jeff Sessions seat would be held by a Democrat. And lo and behold, that mm-hmm. happened. Um, yeah. Do you feel that in this era that it is kind of an era where it's more likely for unlikely things to happen? And does that make things tough for a site like 538 that kind of, uh, you know, made its uh, bread and butter on more or less predicting the outcomes of elections? 
I unfortunately had to push back a little bit on your on the last thing you said. We don't predict the 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 outcome of elections. We uh, look at polls and and make a forecast, make a sort of statistical forecast. But I do think I do take your greater point that um, yeah, it's a really interesting time to be covering politics, and there's a lot of you know I think the Me Too moment, aside from being a cultural moment, is actually potentially will have an ele- will have electoral effects like again it's january we can't rule out that's that other scandals won't break in the political sphere um i think lips are a little tighter in politics but who knows if you know there are scandals that would come out that would threaten people who hold you know elected offices um so that's one wild card um there are these wave of retirements for Republicans and you don't know who's going to retire next, who might decide, listen, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to work in this environment. It's unpredictable. You know, you saw stories about this with Paul Ryan, you know, people saying this guy's out after 2018. Um, so I think it is definitely going to be a much more unpredictable year. I think 2016 also taught us to, you know, I think, you know, as people might like to say, sort of reexamine your priors, like what is, you know, what did we think in 2012 or 2014 and what might be different in 2018? Um, so I think it's, it's a lot better to be the relentless skeptic than it is to say, well, this is, this is how it happened the last time. So this is probably how it's going to happen this time. I mean, Alabama was a shocking result to see a Democrat be elected there. So it's kind of like a never say die year. Don't, don't, don't count them out to the fat lady sings, all that stuff. So uh, yeah, I think it's going to make it interesting to cover politics this year. I think for me that some of the recent developments in politics have kind of just highlighted the difference between the kind of the idea of something being improbable versus, you know, some people uh, might view it as more like impossible. And so really improbable right. doesn't mean it won't happen because clearly improbable things are happening. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Does that mindset actually help a site like 538s, you know, where, you know, in 2008 and 2012, they were kind you know, they were seen as this like prescient, though, we guessed everything right kind of, you know, website. And now that everything's sort of been thrown in, not necessarily upheaval, but just the expected, you know, the unexpected has become the expected in a way. Does it help a site like 538 where you're talking about probability, not, you know, absolutes or something like that? I think absolutely. I mean, I think it's a hard lesson for some people to learn. Um but yeah, I think it. I think the the idea that that Trump did end up winning did teach people a lot about what what those you know what the New York Times you know meter meant or what our model meant. You know, it, it's it probability is you know is to a certain extent a, an uncomfortable thing to grasp because often I was talking with a friend about this recently. Often statistics are proffered to us like in medical settings where they say. You have a, you only have a five percent chance of getting breast cancer, right? Or you only have a ten percent chance of getting it. Where people sort of are trying to say that to almost soothe you. Don't worry, it's a very you're probably it's probably not going to happen. That doesn't mean it's not going to, you know. So there's this odd thing where sometimes we we either use statistics to soothe or to um, say absolutely this is going to happen, you know. Uh, and I think that that it was a hard lesson for people to learn, but certainly. I think this year made people more aware of what our statistical model tries to show and what other what other places try to show. So um, I think I think maybe in some ways we all got smarter <laughs> in 2016. So we tried to ask Claire Malone, does Ohio still matter? Because, you know, it's the name of the podcast and the big question. And she kind of turned it around on us. I think she might have literally used those words. And so um, I think that uh, we all kind of have our anecdotes from covering politics in the state. And um, I guess uh, because this is like a, a, an exploration of that, it's not like we're going to come to a definitive answer. Um, but Mary did get to talk about that time that she went to a Jay-Z concert for work. And... Uh, you know, found something unexpected there. Yeah, no, I, uh, I went to a Jay-Z concert. It was a Hillary Clinton get out the vote concert in, um, 2016. Well, what's the Venn diagram of like Trump voters and Jay-Z fans? Do you think? I think fairly small. What, what do you guys think? I bet it's bigger than most people yeah. think. Um, you know, 
when you start getting into musical taste, that it, it tends to run the gamut. You've got yeah. you know people who. It, it, anyway, the the point to my vignette about the the Jay Z concert was um, Hillary Clinton did not, but for a very long time was not paying a lot of attention to Ohio. She didn't come for several weeks, and this Jay Z concert was the first time she had been there, if my recollection serves, um, in a while, um, and. Then Claire started talking about how it, it sort of registered with Democrats that they didn't really pay attention to um, some Midwestern states um, that ended up being really, really important. They thought that they could win through um, non-traditional states like Arizona um, I, or I have to Georgia. kind of wonder if that was them, like, instead of catching the boring normal fish, I think they might have been trying to hook, like, the big fish, you right. know, maybe some hubris involved. Right. And so, you know, the larger theme is, you know, people are thinking, oh, wait, you know, maybe maybe Ohio does still matter. You know, maybe it's important to still t- pay attention to the Ohio's and Wisconsin's and Michigan's of the world because they traditionally, um, if you pay attention to them, um, can can turn turn things around for you. All right, and now back to more with Claire Malone of 538. Something that we're interested in kind of drilling down on as we do this podcast and as kind of like the year unfolds and as 2020 approaches and stuff like that is whether Ohio is going to continue to be as relevant on a national stage as it is or as it has traditionally been. Um, How do you you kind of size up Ohio and in what role it will play if, you know, not in 2018 or maybe 2020 or just on an ongoing basis? Well, should we talk about John Kasich? (laughs) Because I think he's going to try to make Ohio relevant all the way through 2020. Um, you know, I think, he, well, what is it? What's his, what's the name of his book? Is the third way? The, two, the, paths. You, two paths. Two paths. Thank you. Thank you. And I he's like it was rebranding something. a third way, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hashtag two paths, right? Like, I think um, that's why I was sort of interested to see what the Mandel Senate race would look like. Because he was sort of courting these you know, the Mike Cernovich forces in the Republican Party, the more Trumpy forces in the Republican Party. And I was interested to see that contrasted with, you know, a guy in the governor's office who went out of his way to be a burr in the side of not just the president, the now president, but the entire Republican Party in some ways. I think he's a I think he's a fascinating figure. So in that sense, I think Ohio is relevant. Um I think governor's races, I mean, we care a lot about governor's races, so we're certainly watching Ohio with a keen eye. I mean, I still think um, it's a state with a lot of, you know, it's got elements of Appalachia. Um, I think that, you know, again, like the Youngstown area has become this sort of, I think for Ohioans, this irritating trope of of the dying in, in industries. But it becomes this, you know, the one question that politicians can't really answer from either party is, what does the economy look like 10, 15, 20 years from now? What does it look like? What do you, when we say the robots are taking over your jobs, what does that mean? Like, what does this look like? And I think Ohio has a really interesting economy. You know, there's a lot of healthcare in, Ocon- in, in Ohio, and that's a huge part of the American economy. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things in Ohio that are emblematic of America that I don't think it becomes irrelevant. But I guess I would turn the question to you guys and ask, do you feel like it's becoming less relevant in the national conversation? Well, you know, I think we kind of look at it as, uh, I, I don't know, you know, we, we live here, we work here, we cover it every day, and we know the historical significance of it. And we wonder, outside of here, does it still hold that significance? Does uh, do, do people think of it as more than just a state that's important every four years for an election? Is there a... A, a broader importance that's there. I, I don't you know, know what you two Seth, think. Anecdotally, you know, last year when I was covering the Hillary Clinton campaign, or not last year because it's 2018. Um, in yeah. 2016, <laughs> sorry, um, yeah. still, uh, still confusing my years here. Um, when I was covering Hillary Clinton, I remember she didn't come. Like there were weeks yeah. and weeks and weeks of that fall where she was not in Ohio, and we were like, "Where is she? Where is she?" And I remember. I was at a uh, Jay-Z concert, and Beyonce actually made a special appearance in the middle of downtown Cleveland. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be a huge get-out-the-vote concert. This is going to be hugely energizing. And was totally anticipating a packed house. And it, it mm-hmm. just wasn't. I mean, there weren't that many people there. And it was a free Beyonce concert. I mean, Beyonce was there. Um, and I remember walking around, talking to folks, and there's this one young woman 
from Cleveland and I was, you know, asking her, oh, you know, have you early voted? Like, you know, have you, have you voted for Clinton yet? And she's like, oh no, I'm a Trump voter. I'm just here yeah. to see Jay-Z. And I was like, whoa, you know? <laughs> so, um, and don't you think Clinton regrets that a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but to answer your, you know, thinking about Ohio's importance, I yeah. think it was downplayed um, by the Clinton campaign in, in 2016, yeah. um, talking to them, just chatting with the, the people regionally, like on the ground in Cleveland, the campaign thought Ohio was in the bag, or really yeah. they thought they didn't really need Ohio to win. Um, yeah. Path to victory was mentioned a lot in Ohio. They, they could win without Ohio, so it was okay, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think... I think that's interesting. I, I will I will say this, which is the Clinton campaign was certainly attracted to the idea of winning against Trump by winning in places that Democrats don't usually win. They were attracted to pulling off a victory in Arizona. They were attracted to pulling off a victory potentially in Georgia. I mean, I remember a point three weeks before the election when that was really being talked about, you know, and they moved they moved a fair number of resources to Arizona. I think you are now looking at a lot of Democratic strategists who are saying, wow, we really, I'm not all just wearing this podcast, but uh, we really screwed the pooch on that one, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's not smart to ignore these places that we might have thought were okay to ignore. I mean, Wisconsin has become sort of the, the like the joke, like why, where was the Clinton campaign in Wisconsin? But you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, um, those are places where, you know, people will point out, maybe you, should, you know, people weren't going to, maybe the black voters in Cleveland or Detroit weren't going to vote for a Democrat as much as they you know, would for, for a historic candidate in President Obama. But, you know, maybe, maybe more turnout could have been done. I think you're going to be seeing a lot of second guessing of the way the Clinton campaign treated the upper Midwest. And, uh, and, and the idea that was huge in, uh, the democratic national committee election, uh, which took place in, in February, you know, so pretty, pretty close to, to when the election had just happened, you saw a lot of angry people from Midwestern states and states all around the country that felt that they, their advice had been ignored. And so, you know, now the DNC's whole thing is we're going to make them play a play in every state and we're going to, we're not going to ignore places. We'll see if that happens, but I do think that, you know, the Doug Jones victory, frankly, might have done a lot of sort of morale boosting and ear perking for people to say, whoa, okay, like, let's, let's make some plays here. Like, let's, let's win the minority voters in Arizona and Georgia if we can. But let's also remember that, like, let's do some persuasion and try to win back those largely white uh, Obama to Trump voters, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's something they shouldn't ignore over the next three years. You know, I want to go back to John Kasich. Obviously, with his book, Two Paths, he's kind of going on this Robert Frost imagery, you know, two paths divulged in a woods. Um, and I'm wondering whether or not you think there is a path for Kasich in 2020. Um, you know, he's 65 right now. Um, is the Kasich voter out there? And, and what's he trying to accomplish right now? You know, um, I, I think Kasich is an interesting protest figure right now in the Republican Party. Um, and that's what I would call him for the moment. I think there are figures, I think he's a similar figure to, to Romney, who sees himself as a as a protest figure, more or less, you know, and I'd be interested to see what Romney does if he runs for Senate. Um, but I do... I, I find Kasich fascinating. I mean, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what he'll do for 2020, but right now I think he has positioned himself as sort of this, you know, uh, this sort of man standing alone. And he's well aware of that. I also think he wants to be president, but, um, you know, I think he's, his brand right now, to, to use a millennial term, is protest figure. And that's fair in, in the Republican Party of Trump, which has drifted quite a ways away from where it was four and eight years ago. So if uh, John Kasich is kind of like the archetype of the, you know, quote unquote, like mild mannered suburban Republican, um, do you think that Sherrod Brown 
maybe as a as a archetype of a Rust Belt liberal progressive, um, you know, figure. Do you think that uh, there's going to be an especially? Uh, do you think there's a place for Sherrod Brown? Do you think there's going to be more interest in him as a national figure? You know, depending on how this year goes. I, I think interest in him as an interest in him as a national figure remains to be seen. I mean, how he handles. Something like, you know, you saw that there was a report this morning in the New York Times about how more moderate Democrats are trying to loosen rules on Dodd-Frank. Well, that seems like an area where Sherrod Brown should really go for the jugular, right? So maybe you watch and see whether or not he gets any press attention for, for something like that. I mean, I think it's a sort of difficult thing right now to have been, you know, the past six weeks, you know, right around the holidays were sort of dominated by these toppling of men in politics by powerful female Democratic senators. And, you know, I think to a certain extent, maybe a lot of these guys are kind of saying, all right, I'm going to bide my time for for a little bit and and wait for the next moment. But I think something like the rules changes on the potential rules changes on Dodd Frank could be something that Sherrod Brown could could go for. But I mean, he is, you know, I think the gravelly voice serves him well as as this sort of, you know, the emblematic Rust Belter. So we'll see. I mean, I do think it's going to be, I think the race will get national attention because of the uncertainty on the Republican side, and we will see how Sherrod Brown reacts. I mean, I'm sort of interested to see how it all unfolds from my personal point of view. Do you think he stands a chance if he jumps into the 2020 race? I don't know. Um, I think think there's a lot, there's there's gonna be a lot of jockeying in that race. So, you know, if you get into a race that over the next year and a half or whatever hones down to having, say, three or four front runners, many of whom are younger and women, then maybe Sherrod Brown doesn't stand a chance. But if it's like a version of like the 17-way Republican primary that we saw last time, yeah, maybe Sherrod Brown gets in. But I think it's – I really think it's too early to tell because the news changes so quickly now, and I think we've seen so many sort of um, seismic cultural moments that – I'm I'm not I'm not quite ready to place my bets on on who decides to run this year. I think it'll be interesting. But you know, he's a he's a senior senator from Ohio in a um, with a progressive record in the age of Trump. Like he, of course, I'm sure he thinks about running for president. They all think about running for president. That's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know you've got to run, so we do appreciate you uh, chatting with us. Before you go, we do have one more question. Uh, so you're both someone who works for a uh, data website and is featured on a podcast. We want to know what you think the margin of error for us succeeding in this podcast is. I think you guys are going to do so well. I'm going to tweet it out. <laughs> Everyone in Ohio should listen to this. Uh, I think I think um, two-point margin of error, you're going to be the number one podcast in the Cleveland area within three weeks of launching. I I don't know how much competition there is there. I think we will be the one and only, so default number one. Uh, Well, I'm rooting for you. This was so much. Oh, thank you. All right, that's Claire Malone, senior politics reporter from 538. Claire, thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for having me. 